Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with modern-day jazz pianist Dan Kaufman. He was born in Berkeley, California, raised in Chicago, and has been in New York City since 2001. He spoke with Neon Jazz about his time at the New England Conservatory, learning under the watchful eye of Fred Hirsch, along with performing with cats like Jimmy Heath, Wynton Marsalis, Christian McBride, and Mark Turner. These days, he is promoting his brand-new 2015 album called Familiar Places, and he has plenty to say about it, along with much more, including tales from the great Paul Schaefer. Dig this interview, my friends. Thank you, Dan, for taking some time to talk with me. I got familiar places in the mail last week. Very impressed, and I'm very happy to have the chance to get to know you a little bit more here. I appreciate that. Thank you. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to dive in, of course, as I said, Familiar Places is your newest disc. But give me an idea of what's been going on with you lately. Well, the record has been my main thing. It's my first record. So that's quite sure what to expect, you know, a lot of this. The promotion and the publicity and stuff is all kind of new to me, which is interesting. I'm really just excited to be in a position where I can play more as a leader. It's harder to to book gigs and stuff. As you know, musicians, I feel like know who I am, but you need to being a leader is just it puts you in a position to to play gigs as a leader, obviously. And so that's just really exciting for me because I kind of like having the control. I like having, getting to pick the music and pick the people I play with. It's just really probably the most rewarding thing I've done in a while. That's an interesting, uh, an interesting angle on this is that you've been around for a long time. You've worked with Wycliffe Gordon, Rodney Green, and Marilyn May. And you, there, there's so many people that you've worked with. You've been around for so long. Why did it take so long for you to get to this point where you have your own solo project now? You know, that's a good question. I get asked that a lot. (laughs) And um, honestly, it's always, I feel like it's too long. I I wish I would have done it sooner. I think I just wanted it to to be right. Like I kind of a little bit of a perfectionist about, well, I don't know if my playing is good enough. I don't know if the music is good enough. I, you know. And I guess on the upside, I think had I done my first record, say, five years ago or even ten years ago, I don't think it would be as good of a record. I feel like it's for a first record, it feels kind of like a more mature record than than it could have been. Yes, yeah, probably, but to answer your question, probably just my own standard of uh, just really kind of wanting to feel really proud of what I was doing and feel like I was at a point as a player where I felt like I had a voice that was more developed. Again, like if I had put a record out five years ago, it I might have might have heard it say, oh, he sounds like he's stealing that stuff from Herbie Hancock or this stuff from Keith Jarrett. And I feel like my influences have kind of become deeper assimilated into my playing and it feels more it's more honest, maybe more sincere, more organic. So in that sense I'm glad I waited. I'm proud of the record now. So give me a little bit of an idea of familiar places. What is exactly the energy that went into it recorded in January two thousand fourteen in Brooklyn and and just kinda of give me an idea of, of what the flow from Windshadow down to Farmington, what what was kind of the impetus, the creative controls that went into this? It was mostly about the the writing, trying to sort of collect a body of of compositions that I felt were were strong and had 
kind of a clear vibe to them that they um and that fit together sort of like a i don't know almost like a greatest hits of <laughs> of my compositions and stuff that I had been working at and playing with different groups over the years and kind of refining the compositions and but I wanted it uh I wanted it to be about the tone of each piece and I wanted it to be something that people could listen to and they could dig it even if they might not necessarily listen to a lot of jazz. You know, I didn't wanna dumb it down or anything like that or make, but but wanted it to have a specific character to each tune and be about the melodies and it be about the vibe and picking the players and picking the tunes and picking the the whole process I think was the focus was how do we get the vibe of each composition and and in a way that's but also not to be kind of restricted by that or feel like you know I composed myself or the other guys in the band into a corner but to have to have different concepts and different mood for each tune that people could relate to and understand like, oh, I know what this is about. And then they could open up. It was basically about us playing the tunes that I wrote in a way that felt like they captured a, a specific mood and tried to make each, each piece unique, um, but fit with the other one. I, th I think there is a kind of a, somehow some sort of consistent tone to the whole thing. The pieces hopefully sound Stink. I didn't, you know, there's a lot of records sometimes I listen to that I love, but but sometimes I feel like um, the tunes kind of blur together, and uh, you know, I didn't want the, I didn't want anybody to get bored listening to to the music. Sometimes I get bored listening to jazz as much as I love it, and I wanted to to sort of make a record that I would that I would want to listen to, basically. Absolutely, absolutely. Talk to me a little bit about where you were born and raised. I was raised in Chicago. I was actually born in California in, in Berkeley. Yeah, I grew up in Chicago. Started with classical music, uh, classical lessons when I was young, but didn't really get that serious about piano until I kind of discovered jazz as a teenager. Um, and uh, went to school in Boston at uh, New England Conservatory, and then went to New York after that. So, when you were a kid, did you, what did you want to be when you grew up? You know, it's funny. You said I the other day I was uh, over by Lincoln Center and uh, I was waiting in line at the grocery store and I saw uh, Paul Schaefer from uh, the Letterman show and I, and I didn't want to bother him, but I said, you know, I have to go up and talk to him. And I did. And I said, you know, sorry to bother you, but you know, when I was a kid, people asked me what I want to do when I grow up. I, I always say, you know, I want to be Paul Schaefer <laughs> when I grow up. And, uh, he was funny, but he said, "Well, I hope your, I hope your uh, aspirations have have uh, grown since then." <laughs> Having a really nice talk, a little bit, he asked me about the record. Very humble guy, very, very funny. But yeah, I just you know thought it'd be fun to kind of be on TV and play rock music and make jokes. <laughs> yeah, and who would want to be teamed up with David Letterman? Back in yeah. doing that. I mean, that would have been the best thing in the world. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It seemed, that seemed like a dream gig. But, you know, as I, you know, through high school, I started to, that was sort of before I had kind of gotten the, the bug about jazz, you know. I don't think, um, I just always wanted to play more than you could probably get away with doing on The Tonight Show. Yeah. Uh, although now, 
you know, Jonathan Batiste is playing, and he's fabulous. So, oh yeah, I wanted to be a musician fairly, fairly early on, and and it was sort of a matter of getting encouragement and uh, from teachers and people I was playing with, so that it, I could actually do it and have make a living playing. So it, it was sort of like, really, okay, well, great then. I'll just keep keep going. Yeah, there was never any question of this. What I love to do, it was you know, sort of a process of discovering if it was actually practical. <laughs> Absolutely. So I feel fortunate to you know, I've been in New York now, geez, about since 2001, and been been working. That was probably a very interesting time to arrive there because was it before or after 9/11? It was actually like a week or two before then. Wow. Um, yeah. I had just uh, moved into the dormitory at the Juilliard. Yeah, it was, it was certainly interesting. Yeah, I, I didn't, you know, I'm sure everybody remembers where they were during that time. I didn't, it was one of those things, I didn't believe it was happening until I, I saw it. You know, I looked yeah. from one of the, the, the dormitories at Juilliard are, kind of like a high rise over there and I they said they're flying planes into the World Trade Center and I didn't I I thought it was, was it, it just didn't make sense and then I had to look out the window and see the smoke going up to to believe it. Yeah, so it's it's been here a while. Yeah, absolutely. So let me let me get back to the New England Conservatory. I've heard of Fred Hirsch, but someone had said that there is a common name with students, and they name him Fred Harsh sometimes because he's pretty rough. Yeah. Is that an accurate thing? And if so, are you getting baptized by fire with someone like that, a luminary, so to speak, teaching you? I'd never heard that, but um, yeah, that's certainly – he's not mean-spirited at all. And um, I um, and I love Fred, and I, I um, he's had a major influence on my playing and, and really my – generation. I uh, I studied with him there and, and he was great to me. I mean, he he was someone who encouraged me to come to New York, even let me house sit for him when he was on the road to kind of um, get a get a taste of uh my life in New York is not exactly like Fred's. <laughs> he he has a beautiful loft in the middle of Soho, but <laughs> but uh I was like, oh, this is great. I want that. I'll move to New York. No, he's, I mean, he's very, um, he's no more, I wouldn't say he's any more critical of his students than he is on himself. You know, yeah. he, he, but he holds you to very high standards. Yeah, it's hard to imagine how I would play if it wasn't for him. And also, at the same time, uh, while I was in New England Conservatory, study with um, uh, Danilo Perez, very different personality uh, than Fred, very, um, uh, just super joyous and um, very well, more extroverted, and and I can't imagine having two better teachers. I mean, I, I still look back at my time at NEC as just like, how did I pull that off? I got to study with Fred Hirsch, Anthony Perez, and and a, and a great teacher named Charlie Benakis, who um, was sort of a guru um, who lived up in northern Massachusetts. Um, so. Yeah, NEC was just fantastic. Well, then when you move on to the Juilliard School, you studied with Kenny Barron. That had to be another level of pass the baton on to some greatness. Yeah, that was great too. It was that was like um, 
Oh, I had so much fun studying with Kenny. He's so so warm, and we we've essentially sort of played duets, you know, every week. Um, and um, he was very encouraging, and just his approach to teaching is a little more sort of by osmosis. You just kind of play with Kenny Barron at the same time, and just kind of pick up. And that's you know, I think one of the best ways to learn, just kind of trying to sound like him, trying to sound okay playing with him at the same time. <laughs> yeah. Trying to keep up. Um, he's incredible. Yeah, that's great. Well, and then from there, you, you, you've had a lot of really good teachers, and you've moved on. Um, you were with the Eda War Orchestra, and uh, that was a pretty in-demand um, outfit there in the Boston scene. You worked with Jeremy Powell. You've worked with a lot of people throughout your life. What has it been like to be in that collaborative environment with, with what you would consider jazz forces and luminaries? I mean, every every gig is different, you know. Um, it's hard to, but, um, you know, I've tried to to sort of not be pigeonholed or try, try to not be limited by, oh, he does this type of gig. He's a great bebop player. He's more of a Latin player. Try to be able to do whatever the gig is. Um, and I think, you know, going to school in Boston was a great environment to do that because the scene is small enough that, um, you know, you can kind of be in different scenes at the same time. I, I find it's a little harder in New York because um, everybody's so good. <laughs> I mean, there's so many great players. And, and people just to keep from getting overwhelmed, it's, you know, people tend to get a little bit more, I don't want to say pigeonholed, but, you know, to go call him for this type of thing or for that type of thing and um where you know most of the musicians I know on the scene here in New York they might be might have a, a idea that oh this guy's like a great bebop player and have no idea that how they how they can play like a funk gig and just kill it you know because they don't get the opportunity to um um but um um, yeah, I've just, you know, as a piano player, sometimes I've, you find yourself sort of being a co-leader or a musical director, especially like working with vocalists, which I have done a lot of. Um, and, um, you know, I sort of found myself gravitating towards a little bit more of a leadership role, like, you know, having ideas of, oh, well, I, I like, what if we did the arrangement like this or what if we changed this chord here or what if, you know, like wanting to add my own arrangement or things to, to gigs where it wasn't necessarily my gigs and, and sort of feeling like, you know, I need to do my own project too as a sort of just an outlet for my, you know, otherwise I'll, I'll get, I'll get myself fired trying to turn in <laughs> yeah. turn all my sideband gigs into my own gig, you know? Yeah, you don't want that to happen. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Let me let me ask you this. You know, you, you come from born in California, you go to Chicago, you come to New York, you've obviously been there a while. What's the greatest thing about living in New York? The greatest thing? Yeah. That's a good question. I think the energy, just the level, the amount of 
it's certainly not the uh, cost of living. <laughs> it's uh, no, I mean, because all the cats are here, you know, and it's just so not all the cats, but it feels that way. Um, and um, just, you know, the street musicians on the subway are are really playing. You know, the guys playing background at a wedding gig. You know, are people that are on dozens of records, and um, there's just the the level of creative music happening is there's just so much of it and it's so high and it's just it uh, it makes you want to be a part of it it makes you want to practice it makes you want to play more it makes you want to compose so yeah the music is for me the best part of being in New York so let me kind of get into a little nostalgic route here and this is kind yeah. of a two part question like. Of all the musicians that have influenced you in your life, if you could go back in time and see one of them at a venue performing, who would you want to go see? Or a few of them. Who would you want to see and, and where would you go? Oh, wow. Um, oh, geez, I mean, I would love to have seen Miles. Of course, I would love to see Bill Evans. Bill Evans at the Vanguard. Yeah. Be amazing. Art Tatum. That's a great question. Coltrane band and it's you know it's in early sixties you know sometime like I'd love to yeah go to the Vanguard in like nineteen sixty four and you know see Miles' band see Coltrane's band see what Bill Evans is doing yeah that yeah, would that would be nice <laughs> yeah yeah that would be totally cool um so let me ask you this what's the greatest thing about waking up every day for you? Greatest thing about waking up every day. Um, that's a great question too. Well, knowing that I I get to do what I love, you know, it's going to say Folgers in my cup, but I, <laughs> um, <laughs> that's good too. I mean, you, that's you good too. Have but, yeah, no, but I, I actually wouldn't drink Folgers. <laughs> yeah, but. Uh, <laughs> I didn't think I'd be stumped. That's a great question. No, you, I think you nailed it, though. You you get a okay. joke you love. So let me ask you this, a little bit more of a broader kind of stroke here. Why do you love jazz? Probably the the sort of inclusiveness of it. The um, I mean, I love jazz as sort of a, a genre and the stylistic of swing and the blues and and just, just the sound of jazz, you know, the sound of the ride cymbal and the upright bass and the piano and which is kind of specific to the to the style, but I feel like it as you grow as a person and as an artist and are influenced by different things, and your taste might change. You might want to be into music from Cuba or, or heavy metal or um, classical music, and there's a way I feel like in jazz is, is the only genre I know of that allows you to assimilate that and it can still be jazz, you know, that it, you know, it embraces other genres and that it, there's room for your voice. Like, I like that it's really hard to, hard to say, well, that's not jazz. Like, if, if you're doing things that are creative and involve improvisation and, and you know, this it's sort of the, the process of jazz, the, the freedom, the, uh, expansiveness of it, the the malleability of it, the the way it's a living art form. If there's room for people to find their own voice in it. I, you know, that's really all I'm hoping to do with my records is just 
you know, say what I have to say. Um, and hopefully it comes across as something that's unique to me and personal. And there's there's so much, like we talk about in New York, there's just so much great music out there. Try to say your piece and be yourself. And Let me ask you this. So you're, you're embarking on a new journey here as a solo artist. So let's say we get together in 20 years and we talk. My first question to you is going to be, like this one, this interview, what has been going on lately? What are you going to want to tell me has happened and transpired in the last 20 years of your jazz career? Oh, wow. Yeah, I'd like to say that I've been touring as a leader and doing – I also like to to sort of be the guy behind the scenes sometimes in, in different projects, like not necessarily um, the leader as far as a – Front man, or not that maybe not necessarily the face of a of a project, but sort of the musical director of things. I like to be be doing producing and composing and arranging for for a lot of different projects. In addition to being a leader, I mean, I think probably playing with my band at all around the world. Well, it's probably the single most important, most like the core of whatever. I'd like to be doing in 20 years, but not necessarily only that, you know, just to, as long as you stay inspired and productive and stimulated, you know, and maybe something I haven't even thought of right now, but uh, we'll see. That's kind of the, the, the fitting end right there for the interview. It was great to get to know you. Thanks for opening up with me. And well, great. Well, thank you for asking such thought-provoking uh, questions. Yeah. Right on. It was my pleasure. Good luck with the album, man. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in Chicago, New York, Kansas City, and spots all over the world, giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Dan for his music, his vision, and his great blend of jazz. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interview with Joe Domino on the iTunes store or visit the neonjazz.blogspot.com for all things neon jazz. Until next time, enjoy the music, my friends. Neon Jazz.